You're listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation podcast. On Thursday, March 29th, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation and the David Rockefeller Center for Latin American Studies hosted a Democracy in Hard Places seminar titled, The Fellow State, Liberalism Against Public Works in Latin America. Alicia Holland, Assistant Professor in the Politics Department at Princeton University and author of Forbearance's Redistribution, The Politics of Informal Welfare in Latin America, spoke. Scott Mainwaring, Jorge Paulo Lehman Professor of Brazil Studies at Harvard Kennedy School, moderated. Um, today, um, Alicia Holland is speaking, and she's an Assistant Professor at Princeton. She's very familiar to this campus. She did her dissertation here, and my great friend, uh, Fran Hagopian, described her dissertation uh, as the best she's ever read. And Fran has read a lot of dissertations, <laughs> and I have great confidence in her judgment. And it is now available as a Cambridge University Press book, uh, Forbearance is Redistribution, the Politics of Informal Welfare in Latin America, um, so the only other thing I want to say before we begin is um, thanks to Alicia. And uh, we record these sessions, so the session is on the record. It'll be posted on the Ash Center website after the fact. Um, so that might suggest that you should exercise some restraint in how awful you want to be this afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Scott. Um, I'm going to stand. So I was initially going to talk about my book, which was done and polished, and I'd be very happy to go on the record about. Um, But instead, I decided to talk about a very new project, which nonetheless will be on the record. Um, But it's extremely preliminary, so I'm really looking forward to your feedback on it. Uh, It begins with a puzzle. Controlling the television will not help. Um, which is that in political science, we think that politicians love infrastructure projects. So they're easy to open in ribbon-cutting ceremonies. You can inaugurate them with big parties. And as we've seen recently across Latin America with the Brazilian construction company Odebrecht, infrastructure is also a great way to steal money. Um, So I started to think about this project when I was visiting my family in Panama, And for those of you who know me, you might know that I love to figure skate and rollerblade. And so I asked my aunt, you know, where could I go rollerblading while I'm in Panama City? And she said, oh, the highway. And I thought, "Um, well, I know Latin Americans don't understand exercise particularly well, but, you know, maybe there's a bike path. And she said, no, 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 just go on the highway. There are no cars there. And indeed, if you go down the Cinta Costanera in Panama City, you will see very few cars and eventually arrive at a monument built by Odebrecht. But despite this, Latin America has really terrible infrastructure. So first of all, governments just don't spend that much on infrastructure in comparative terms. So most Latin American governments spend around 1% to 2% of GDP on infrastructure, To give a radical comparison, China often spends 9 to 10% of GDP on infrastructure. World Bank and international institutions usually suggest something more like 4 to 5, maybe even 6% of GDP. So even if you want to steal money, you usually have to spend money. 
Another big puzzle is that many governments allocate funding to infrastructure, and then they don't spend it. So, for example, in Peru, only about half of infrastructure funds actually got spent in 2015. Colombia was about 60% of the funding allocated to infrastructure. And this extends beyond Latin America. So, for example, in the Philippines, you'll find lots of stories about the failure to spend infrastructure funds. About a third of funding went spent in 2014. And this isn't a case that governments are, you know, austerity-minded and trying to think about counter-cyclical policy, but you see top-level officials really expressing frustration that this funding is not being used for infrastructure projects. So, for example, the finance secretary in the Philippines says it's a sin not to spend the budget for essential public infrastructure. Or one of my favorite quotes from Colombia is that the only worse thing than a white elephant is half of a white elephant. So this is a puzzle that I'm loosely calling an idea of fallowness or a fallow state to refer to the underuse of resources. Now the analogy isn't perfect because usually when we use the term fallow it's in an agricultural context when farmers are leaving fields to rest in the hopes of more productive crop yields. Most cases in Latin America, I don't think this is exactly the logic. So it's, again, it's not necessarily an austerity-minded measure. But I do think there are ways that governments sometimes deliberately underuse funds out of concerns of corruption or that partisan allies will be using them or simply the difficulties of balancing societal um, resistance and, um, and opportunism against the use of infrastructure funding. So the broad questions in my book are, what explains limited investment in infrastructure historically? And I'm mainly looking at Latin America. Why do we see the rise of infrastructure spending in some countries in the contemporary period? So trying to understand variation largely across Latin American countries. And then also, why do politicians leave money on the table? So how do we explain these sort of fallow outcomes? And usually when political scientists approach this topic, the first thing they're going to think about is the time horizons around infrastructure construction. And usually this is conceptualized as regime variation. So when you think, why does China spend so much on infrastructure? Well, the leaders have the luxury of planning for the long term. Democratic politicians are myopic, so might be less interested in long-run investments. Another way this is often thought of in the literature has to do with the role of political parties. So perhaps you need strong political parties to extend the time horizons of democratic politicians. My project takes seriously the idea that infrastructure is slow and risky to build, but I don't think that regime type or party strength is necessarily doing much of the work. So we didn't see Latin American militaries build a lot of infrastructure. Today, many populist politicians do much more infrastructure construction than stable party systems. Mm. Now, what I want to focus on today is also the role that institutional rules play in shaping the time frame over which infrastructure gets built. So I think that institutions often shape the personal and electoral rents that politicians can extract from infrastructure before projects are complete. I loosely call this an idea of anticipatory rents. So what do politicians get out of these projects before they cut the ribbon? And in the book, I'm planning to focus on three elements that I think shape what politicians get out of infrastructure. 
The first has to do with the contract mode um, by which infrastructure is built. So particularly, I think, to understand the historical rise in infrastructure spending, we need to look at the role of public-private partnerships. Not simply in providing financing for infrastructure, but what I think happens in PPPs is that politicians also can access the rents around infrastructure much earlier in the process. So a PPP usually involves a bundled contract where a politician can assign a large infrastructure contract to a consortium that then subcontracts and designs and sometimes even operates the infrastructure. A traditional public work, which was run maybe by a Ministry of Transportation or a Ministry of Public Works, often is referred to as, as having a bundled contract. So a politician is going to slowly contract the different pieces of an infrastructure project, having a stream of rents to allocate. So part of the book looks at the shift in what public, um, public works ministries actually do and the role of PPPs in changing the time horizons around infrastructure. Second part of the book that I'm not going to talk about today is, has to do with the role of accountability institutions and their variation across Latin America. So Guillermo O'Donnell used to say that he studied horizontal accountability in Latin America because of its absence. But I think in the past decades, we've really seen some countries move forward with much stronger accountability rules, which in some ways create a tension between spending on infrastructure and how cumbersome um, and scrutinized that spending is. And what I want to talk to you about today is the role that liberal rights protections play in infrastructure investments. Now, usually when we talk about liberal rights protections in the literature on infrastructure, the focus has been on their role in guaranteeing investor security. And what I mean by liberal rights here are both the regimes to protect private property um, and also access to a court system that's able to protect those property rights. So the general notion is that countries that do a better job guaranteeing liberal rights will improve the security of investors, um, things like PPPs will be easier to negotiate, and that should lead to higher levels of infrastructure provision. But today I want to talk about a second channel that's important in a lot of developing countries, which has to do with the ways that rights protections often create new moments for societal resistance and also opportunistic dynamics that I'm going to loosely refer to as infrastructure trolling. Um, I'll talk more about what I mean by that. And that these societal challengers are often going to constrain politicians' ability to spend on infrastructure projects. And this is an important source of that fallow state or underspending outcome I talked about at the beginning. So let me walk you through each step of that argument. So first of all, how do we compare liberal rights protections? I'm still playing around with this, but loosely what I want to talk about are three different types of ways that property rights get protected. I'm going to call communitarian, liberal, and statist. I'm going to distinguish between three issues around the way property is protected. The first has to do broadly with the ownership rule that's used. So in the most traditional property systems, transactions are voluntary. So a property owner has to agree to sell if the government, say, needs their land for an infrastructure project. The exception, of course, is eminent domain when the government has the right to take land, um, usually at fair market value, and I'll talk a little bit about that value calculation. In liberal rights systems, most owners, if the government needs land for infrastructure, 
is able to contest both the price they're paid and whether the use of the land really serves some public purpose. Um, and I'm going to call this a property rule around, um, um, around eminent domain for infrastructure. The contrast are more status systems that tend to use what I'm loosely calling a liability rule. So liability, a liability rule means basically that at any moment, the government, if it needs the land, simply can pay a stated price. And property owners are going to have much less recourse to use the court system or to contest the price or the taking of their land. Now, the second part of these property institutions <coughs> has to do with how you're compensated if the government needs land for infrastructure. So loosely, I'm distinguishing between compensation that's based on social market and below market prices. So more communitarian systems take into account who the owner of property is. So if the government needs a piece of land to build an infrastructure project, it's going to compensate the owner based on their own needs. So how this often looks is that more vulnerable groups or individuals are going to receive much higher compensation from the government. This contrasts with liberal systems that are based on market values. So it doesn't matter who owns a piece of property. If the government needs to build infrastructure, it can pay the market value, how that would transact in a common, um, uh, you know, anonymous marketplace, and purchase that land from an individual. More status systems only pay individuals for what they can observe about property. So usually this means using a tax registry. And in most developing countries, tax registries are very out of date. Um, and so status systems will often pay very low prices to take land for infrastructure. Another important element of thinking about property institutions in developing countries has to do whether in with whether informal property rights are compensated. So many communitarian or liberal systems will at least pay property owners for some portion of their land or their improvements on land if they need to build infrastructure. Status systems only care about what's formally registered in the state system and therefore usually do not pay informal property owners. So status systems will end up paying much less in the case they need to build infrastructure. And the third distinguishing feature has to do with how collective rights are recognized. So in communitarian cases, the distinguishing feature is that there are collective rights. How this has played out in many countries recently is through ILO Convention 169, which gives ethnic communities a right to prior consultation. I'll talk about this in a little bit more detail, but what this means is that some, in some cases, communities actually have the right to veto infrastructure projects at the most extreme. Liberal and status systems see individuals as the bearer of rights and therefore are not going to be paying communities or consulting communities in the case that they need land to build infrastructure. All right, so I think these different property institutions have an important impact on how society reacts to infrastructure projects. And here I'm really focused on what I'm calling opportunistic dynamics around infrastructure. So opportunism means that individuals are making claims that don't have to do with the infrastructure project itself. So there also can be principled forms of opposition. Communities may hate the idea of a highway or a dam or something like this. 
But what I'm really focused on here is the way that infrastructure gets leveraged to make other types of claims on the state. So communitarian systems are going to be the most permissive to this types of claims making, whereas status systems are going to suppress it. All right. And I'll talk today largely about the case of Columbia, which is at this extreme of a communitarian case. Um, and the other cases that I'm looking at in my book are Peru and Ecuador, which I'm happy to talk about in the Q&A. All right, so what does societal opportunism mean? Well, I'm loosely paying around with this idea of infrastructure trolls, which again, I just mean as actors who leverage infrastructure to extract rents or make unrelated demands on the state. And I use this in the sense of the Scandinavian fable, where basically a troll waited under a bridge for people to pass to ask for a payment. I don't mean this in a pejorative sense of today's internet trolls. I grew up in the 1980s when trolls were these really cute little colorful dolls. <laughs> and so I want us to think about a broader set of trolls where the key idea is that you're using infrastructure to make other claims on the state. Now the most traditional form of what I'm thinking of as trolling which is thought about a lot in the law and economics literature, is problems of holdouts. So these are basically individuals who refuse to sell their land. And this is the main problem that eminent domain rules try to solve. So basically, if a state needs land, needs to assemble land for infrastructure, it's going gonna, it's gonna to have special rights to do so. Now, liberal systems that allow individuals more recourse to use the court system to contest infrastructure are going to increase the number of holdouts. Now, in many developing countries, you see other types of trolling. And in particular, I'm going to talk about land invasions that often occur in the middle of infrastructure projects as a way to contest the projects, but also to extract rents from those trying to build. And the third type of trolling activity that I'll talk about is this idea of opportunistic bargaining or essentially communities that refuse to consent to infrastructure projects in order to get other goods from the state. All right, so let me talk about the Colombian case to make this all a little bit more concrete. So first of all, it's important to note that many of these liberal rights regimes have origins that have very little to do with infrastructure provision. So in particular, in Colombia, these debates surfaced around the 1991 Constitution. Colombia was trying to make peace with M-19. And in the debates at the Constituent Assembly, actually M-19 pushed for a much more status set of property rules. M-19 was worried about the government's ability to provide infrastructure and also goods like social interest housing and saw many issues arising around the assembly of land needed for these types of projects. But at the Constituent Assembly, conservative landholders basically pushed back and said, no, we need to make sure that land rights are well protected, that investors have security and strong private property protections, and in the case that the government ever needed land for a project, first that claim would need to go through the court system, and the ordinary court system. So this translated into a pretty strong property rule were basically administrative takings in which the government could sort of act quickly and guarantee that it would get a piece of land were severely limited. And there was a heavy reliance on the ordinary court system, even when the government needed to complete pretty basic infrastructure construction. 
The second part of this debate is that Colombia in its constitution included a set of social rights. And in the case of infrastructure, this translated into a scheme of social compensation. So any time that the government needed a piece of land from someone who was perceived to be vulnerable or low income, the government agreed to pay that individual based on their social need rather than the value of their property. So it didn't matter if you owned a tiny shack and it didn't have proper registration. The government was still going to compensate someone at the price of a minimum social interest house. So this often translated into about twenty to $30,000 for an individual plot of land. And the third piece of this has to do with how collective rights were recognized in the Constitution. So Columbia signed ILO Convention 169, which recognizes a right to prior consultation. Unlike many other Latin American countries that are signatories to this convention, though, Colombia applies it very broadly. So many countries restrict prior consultation to extractive and mining projects. Colombia requires consultation for any policy that affects ethnic groups. And so even though we might think of this as most common in the case of extractive industries, highway projects have been frequent subject of prior consultation. So in the past few years, Colombia did 104 of these consultation processes with ethnic communities, and 89 of them related to highway projects. So let me talk about how these rights that were part of a broad constitutional debate created many challenges as Colombia started to invest in infrastructure after the commodities boom. So first, Colombia has many traditional holdout problems. These are largely um, very large landowners and businesses that refuse to sell their property to the government. Now what happens in this case is that holdouts go through the ordinary court system. There's now a move to ex expedite this procedure and create um, deadlines at which judges need to rule and provide um, an end to this holdout process. But in practice, what this does mean is that most large landowners who have recourse to a lawyer are going to take the government to court, and judges have authorized really enormous compensations in these cases. So perhaps one of the most classic problems um, or cases is this Parador de Buga. So this is a tourist stop, which is on one of the large highways that the government is trying to build. And the government initially offered about $200,000 for this tourist stop. Business owner said, no way, that's not enough. I'm going to court. The judge then said that this property was worth, can you guys guess? Yeah, $2.5 So large compensation then gets appealed, there's evidence of a lot of bribery occurred where basically the judge was paid off in this case. So that's a very traditional holdout problem. Many developing countries, though, see a slightly different dynamic around holdouts. So can anyone describe what's going on in this photo? Pipeline. And what's happening? I'll tell you, it's an electricity project, but what's happening along that route? Okay. So let me tell you what happened. So basically, if you had looked at this picture, about 2010, it was virgin forest land. The red is the route for a high-tension power lines that were going to go through um, and connect to Buenaventura. So this project had to be socialized to the communities surrounding it. 
And so the government basically came and said, here's what we're trying to build. Within a year, this is what the area looked like. So people had built their houses pretty much right along the route that the government announced. And this is a pretty common problem. So for example, the highway that I just talked about with the Parador de Buga that got $2.5 million had similar issues on it too. So for example, the highway needed about 900 land parcels when it started the project in 2006. It still needed about 250 parcels in 2011 when the comptroller audited the project. But during that same time period, some 277 new land invasions emerged in the middle of the highway route. So the government had even more land that it needed to buy. And basically the rumors that circulated on the ground were that if you were a low-income individual, you could receive an 100 million peso house so roughly $34,000 if you put yourself in the middle of the highway route. And just to be clear, in the case of these infrastructure, these invasions, most of the people involved are low income. So that's not to say that they all are, but local and national officials really emphasize that the people who were using these infrastructure projects were generally pretty poorly off and also trying to use the projects to make basic demands on the state. So for example, the head of the local planning office around this highway project said, you know, it's people who don't have their basic needs totally covered. Then a large infrastructure project comes, so people think, there's gotta be money for me, no? Let's make ourselves affected. Let's invade to get it. And that's a phrase that I heard a lot on the ground. Make yourself affected. Make yourself part of the project. So this was a way that many communities saw the state arising, and they wanted to make demands on the state for other types of goods, sometimes their own houses, sometimes local public goods. This is pretty similar to the main social worker at the high, National Highway Agency, who says institutional neglect is the phrase that we always come up against when we come to any community. Highways create exaggerated demands to address all the deficits that have accumulated. So from the perspective of communities, these are multi-million dollar projects that they see as a chance to get a small cut for the community. All right, so the third type of infrastructure trolling that takes place in Colombia has to do with how communities organize around it, and particularly ethnic communities. A lot of the RAF in business, um, of the business community, focuses on one woman, although there are many leaders in Colombia who play this role. This is Rosita Solis, um, who's known as El Palo en la Rueda, or the spoke in the wheel that stops infrastructure projects in Colombia. She's an Afro-Colombian on the Pacific coast. And to give you a sense of how this process works, prior consultation is necessary to get an environmental license in Colombia. So if a construction company or the state wants to build an infrastructure project and there's an ethnic community around the path of the project, the company first needs to consult the community to receive the environmental license to proceed with construction. Now this process was designed with indigenous communities in mind. And indigenous communities in Colombia are A, quite small, and B, territorially demarcated. So it was very clear where they were located. But the Constitutional Court of Colombia then tried to apply these norms to Afro-descendant communities, who are 
in general, territorially integrated with the population. There are no clear boundaries for where they exist. So what the court said is that Afro-communities needed to form communal councils. So these are called consejos comunitarios. And part of the confusion is that this built on an older form of civic organizing in Colombia, which were these juntas de acción comunal. So many of these communal councils, when an infrastructure project came, renamed themselves or reformed as consejos comunitarios. So in the case of something like the highway I was just talking about, when the highway project started, there were no ethnic communities identified along the route. But three years later, there were about a dozen communities that filed constitutional claims with the court saying that they too had a right to be consulted. And once they were consulted, communities demanded very legitimate things, schools, health clinics, and also one of the big demands has to do with jobs on the project. So Rosita Solis in particular is despised by some because what she wants out of the project is the ability to control all hiring on the infrastructure project. And many community members really care about getting work from these projects. They're often apathetic to the highway itself, but see it as a chance to get employment. So to give you some sense of this, prior consultation costs about $27 million per community. It's a little bit hard to calculate because the figures and what these deals entail are confidential. Um, but these are very small communities. Um, and one of the big tensions within communities also has to do with who counts as a member of these community councils. So many communities identify, um, many community members primarily identify as mulatto, and yet to take place in these consultation processes, um, many individuals have to decide whether they want to identify as black. And communities use very different definitions. So for example, some communities that I talked to said that only individuals who were descendants of slaves um, in the community could be part of the community council. Others told me that I could join the community council as long as I had an African soul. So, different interpretations. But those who don't join often have a lot of resentment because they don't take part in these community bargaining processes. All right, so how does this impact construction and decisions to invest in infrastructure? Well, some politicians decide it's simply not worth their time and cancel infrastructure projects altogether. So for example, the head of the National Infrastructure Agency said, you know, and we did our part. If it's not possible to reach a consensus, the road will not be built. We will not send the army. We will build roads that people want. So essentially faced with so much societal opportunism and difficulties reaching agreements with communities, some politicians and bureaucrats say, Let's do something else. That's one way that you can get funds unspent. Another is simply that these land issues delay projects pretty severely in developing countries. So for example, prior consultation has stalled Colombian infrastructure projects by an average of 64 months. 59% um, of national highways, or what are labeled strategic highways, have land acquisition problems and 41% have stalled due to prior consultations. So this is a pretty widespread process in Colombia. 
again, it's very linked to the legal structure that protects property. And what's interesting is that you see many bureaucrats use a language that for those of us who work on Latin America might recognize from debates about criminal justice. So, for example, the term that the law is too, provides too many guarantees, it's too garantista, when dealing with projects that are collect, for the collective good, something that you often hear around the police. Due process is too much. States can't do that if they need to act effectively against crime. All right, so let me just summarize um, loosely what I was trying to argue today, which is that many times when we think about liberal rights protections and much of the emphasis around market reforms in Latin America, focused on the importance of protecting property in order to increase the security of investors and make them feel confident investing in infrastructure projects with large fixed costs. So that creates a pathway from which liberal rights protections should be increasing infrastructure spending. What I want to point out today is that as Latin America has become more democratic and institutions have strengthened in their protection of individual and collective rights, you can see an alternative channel develop, which is that many times um, societal actors see infrastructure as a chance to take advantage of the state. And often liberal rights protections permit this type of behavior which then can stall or even lead to the cancellation of infrastructure projects. So states can be strong and strengthening in the sense that they are protecting liberal rights, but at the same point, these rights protections can be very complicated for infrastructure provision. Um, and in some cases, even lead politicians to avoid complex spending. So in this case, many developing countries are actually starting to look somewhat more like the U.S. and Western democracies, where it's often said that after a period of, quote-unquote, easy infrastructure development, many governments had to confront things like the civil rights movement and environmental claims around infrastructure that might be part of the reason that it became harder to provide. So I'm going to leave things there. Thank you again, and I look forward to your comments. Alicia, I might start with one question and sure. open it up. And I, I don't know if you'll have an answer for this, and I don't know if it'll be part of your project, but you had three boxes, three categories, communitarian, liberal, and statist. What leads countries to these different property sets of property rights and, and so forth that, that – so they fit into these three different boxes. Yeah, that's a great question, and that's something that I need to do more research on. I can tell you sort of loosely for the cases that I've been studying. I mean, Colombia it is this part of this broader constitutional discussion. Um, the Colombian constitution is fascinating in the sense that many times people talk about, you know, the unexpected reforms that were included, and I think some of this, particularly around collective rights, truly was unanticipated, but part of a moment where the country recognized that it did need to um, become more inclusive, more democratic, and that was a huge part of the impulse. Um, I should say the term communitarian for Colombia is a little funny because it is, in many ways, a very classic liberal case that just has these collective rights layered on top, so I've been trying to figure out what to call it <laughs> and looks, um, and happy to take suggestions. Um, the more status cases, in many cases, are actually countries that I think preserved 
rights protections from different eras and just never reformed. And interestingly, Ecuador is actually one of these cases that around issues like eminent domain, it's still using the law from the military regime. Mm. So it's a law from 1969 that despite the fact that Ecuador rewrites its constitution every two years or five years, just never gets touched. Mm. Um, and in some ways, I think that's because it serves the state's interests. Um, liberal cases, I haven't studied Peru as closely, but what's interesting about Peru is that many of the provisions around eminent domain and compensation really have to do with the property titling drive that started in the 1990s. Um, and it was a period where I just don't think Peru was anticipating building that much infrastructure. So that's the way that in in many cases, I find these rights somewhat exogenous to these later pushes to build infrastructure. But I certainly do need to do more work to think about, for example, you could imagine the distribution of landowners or things like that are also very important in how these rights get formed. Great. Thank you. Questions, comments? Catherine? Thank you for a really interesting and really uh, kind of innovative research project. Um, but I, I feel like we're missing some initial assumptions here or maybe some initial research conclusions that serve as the basis for the rest of the research. And so we're like, I feel like we kind of entered halfway into the project and you don't. And, and the biggest assumption appears to be unproblematically that projects are for the collective good, mm. you know. And we all know that. Everyone in the room knows that. Everyone who works in development knows that. And therefore... We should be really, really concerned about anything that delays or blocks those projects. But you don't show us any evidence mm -hmm. that actually these infrastructure projects are for the collective good. I remember the, the day when the World Bank stopped doing most of its loans in big infrastructure because the World Bank itself was not persuaded mm -hmm. that these large infrastructure projects were leading to development. Okay, mm -hmm. Now, maybe development thinking has changed a lot since those days, mm -hmm. but at a minimum, you need to share that with us. Mm -hmm. And in particular, I'd like to see any evidence that there's some link between development in Latin America and investment in infrastructure mm -hmm. or completion of mm -hmm. infrastructure. Um, because I'm at least not persuaded, and because I'm not persuaded about that yet, mm -hmm. then I'm, I'm skeptical mm -hmm. about why we should be so worried about all these things that are blocking it, mm -hmm. because I'm not persuaded it's the good that you seem to mm -hmm. be, you know, absolutely convinced it is. Okay, mm -hmm. and 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 then secondly, I, you know, the, you know, tr there's no way around it today. Troll has negative violence. <laughs> if you don't want to have fights with people all the time about this, you know, you're <laughs> using a lot of. Of, of language that, ha that does have this negative valence. You're using mm -hmm. opportunity, you know, there's opportunism, there's trolling, there's all these things that show that, uh, that uh, you know, people extracting all these rents. In other words, you're portraying all of these, you know, infrastructure is the good thing, mm -hmm. and these people are causing all the problems mm -hmm. with infrastructure, and then you give them the name trolls. Mm -hmm. You know, it just sets it up in, in a way that I think you're just going to pick lots of fights that you may not want to pick. Great comments. I didn't want it to come off as a sort of Machiavellian struggle between good infrastructure and bad trolls. <laughs> but um, let me just say, I mean, I think there, there are two questions embedded into, like, is the infrastructure good question? I mean, one is, is it good for growth? Where I think that there are more studies linking infrastructure to growth outcomes. And in that sense, at least we're in a moment where many international institutions think that linkage exists. 
there's another question, and we can debate the evidence on that, but there's another question around the distributional consequences of these projects. Are these projects good for the communities that I'm talking about and often interviewing around them? And there, I think it's much more ambiguous. You know, I think I did go in a little bit with the rhetoric of some of these governments and World Bank, et cetera, thinking like, oh, well, we should, you know, these are going to be producers who are bringing their goods to market and getting new types of access um, and territorial integration. That's very big in Colombia right now. And I think what you see is that, um, first of all, there are many economies that develop around very slow roads. So most of the communities where I did my work Basically, you know, what did women do? Well, they sold goods and made lunch to the truck drivers who were stopping on the highway path, and the men were washing clothes or fixing the trucks, and so there was a whole economy around the fact that the trip takes six hours between, you know, major cities in Colombia. And so that economy will certainly change with a highway that's going to take an hour. Um, and I think that those types of shifts in the economy are harder for communities to think about and to really fully wrap their heads around. So that's why I think many of the immediate demands are, oh, well, we need jobs. Um, we, as long as we get something out of the infrastructure project, we'll, we'll still be able to kind of make it through. But I do think that many of those communities will really suffer um, once these kind of faster highway projects are built. Obviously, we can also ask, like, I'm using the term infrastructure broadly, but different infrastructure projects are also going to have different distributional implications. Um, I have debated the point around trolling, and I understand the negative valence. I mean, in some ways, I want to reclaim the term and just say that, you know, this is a case where unrelated demands and very legitimate demands about state neglect and, um, and basic needs are being linked to an unrelated project. So I think many times linking your first question, the assumption is, oh, people don't want the project, and this is resistance to the project. And I think that actually opinion is much more mixed. I think many times people are sort of apathetic to the project, but they're very clear that if they're getting the project, they want the state. They want schools and health clinics and all sorts of other provision, and in many ways they want that much more than they care about whether the project gets built. Um, but I will try to complicate that story much more. Can I just do one big follow-up on the first question? That is, you know, yeah. Colombia, Peru, Ecuador, your models, and, you know, Colombia is the problem, and Ecuador, presumably, don't hear much about the good guys. In the I, I, I don't want to make models. them the good guys. That's not, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that's your, I mean, I think you're making an argument about these are problems in Colombia, and presumably countries using different models are seeing better completion rates and the development outcomes Well, look, I mean, I think there's a question, like, if we say governments make a social choice about what they want to spend on, and so I do use, you know, once the government's allocated budgets or, you know, announced projects, and then it doesn't do what it's set out to do, I think that what I'm talking about here is there is an implementation problem. We can debate, you know, should a government allocate 1% or 6% to infrastructure? I'm actually pretty agnostic about that. But they are different developmental choices and different distributive consequences. Um, so that's the way in which it's problematic. But I certainly would not say Ecuador is a, you know, standout case. Or even the beginning analogy, Panama and Costa Rica are a very similar pair in which I don't think Panama is the model. The highway to nowhere makes no sense. <laughs>
Pedro. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for the for your presentation. Uh, I did. Um, I, I was left with the feel that, uh, as uh, Catherine put, that there is a. Uh, it is you. This is a di diagnostic of a problem. Uh, and and uh, I felt uh, it would be interesting to understand what would be the suggestions or cases where it, this problem has been overcome. Now, I, I've worked for, uh, worked for the uh, Brazilian federal government, and I've moved from human rights, where our budget, when it got to $100 million per year, uh, we were really partying and, uh, and toasting with our uh, plastic cup coffees and transitioned to monitor the, uh, the Olympic investment that was about 30 billion uh, or 15 uh, billion gas in U.S. dollars. Uh, and uh, what was clear to me is that sometimes a social investment is the rounding error of a infrastructure investment. So if if a community is uh, is advocating to get a school built, mm -hmm. that is not going to have a meaningful impact in the uh, in the project. Mm -hmm. uh, and actually, the problem is to maintain the school and to populate the school with teachers. That's the entirely different problem. That's not going to come from the infrastructure project. So it will require uh, a, a bolder policy to actually uh, for, to meet those those demands. And I would ask how how are they met in these in these cases you mentioned, because obviously you can't uh, uh, you won't be paying the teachers uh, with the investment of uh, infrastructure. Uh, we have had in, in Brazil a, a few cases, interesting cases. Um, a road in the Amazon rainforest, uh, when it was about to obtain its environmental license, the environmental body. Uh, demanded a plan to prevent sex exploitation of uh, young um, teenage girls because that's very common in that region and, and it was that request was challenged because people said, well, it's not environmental. But we don't have a social uh, uh, impact assessment that would perhaps would uh, equip that. But the uh, courts upheld it and they had to uh, actually have a, a mitigating pro program to avoid that. Uh, you may have heard of the Belo Monte uh, Dam. It's a very large uh, undertaking in Brazil, very controversial. Uh, the staying was there advocating for the, uh, for the Indians, uh, for the natives. And, but it, it did get some – it was very hard. But all the negotiations have to be done case by case. There are those uh, rent seekers all, all the time. And if you, go, if you look from the side of the investor – uh, or the contractor, they say, yeah, this is ju just all fraud. And if you see from the side of the community is affected, of course, we are being expelled from our, our, our land, being here forever, especially if you're talking about native uh, population from that region. Mm -hmm. uh, so there is a total legitimacy in the claim. And you have to uh, investigate the cases to make sure you're not making injustice. So it's hard to just dismiss the situation as a, a big situation that sounds as if uh, people are trying to get out of the project something that's not part of the project. Mm -hmm. uh, I think they're old something, and uh, it would be interesting to see that recognition that there is something that is old mm -hmm. uh, to, to, to the affected populations.
And uh, finally, one comment that one problem we have with those major uh, uh, investment projects is with real estate, really. You have uh, major uh, landowners who know beforehand that uh, roads going to go by and they, uh, they will use that to get money or either they're, uh, they sell their plot of land for a, a much higher value that the market would determine or they will uh, invest in that region hoping that the road, for example, will bring uh, businesses and therefore the, the real estate value will go up. Uh, so uh, it would be interesting to see the, if there is a corruption effect to in, the, in, in that investigation. Um, okay. Thank you very much, and thank you for bearing with me about the time. <laughs> hey, I mean, so many questions. I mean, first of all, I just want to clarify. So first of all, in this project, I am focused on highways and subways, in particular as case studies, which I think in many ways I picked because they have many fewer of these kind of um, – Many people would say public baths or the sense that you're really imposing on a community something that's clearly, um, you know, it could be for the national good, but is going to hurt that community. Highways are a much more mixed story, and subways, I would say, are the opposite. Subways usually increase real estate values quite a bit. Um, so that's the way in which I think you can still get many of these social dynamics of making claims that often don't uh, don't have to do with objections to the infrastructure. but And I agree that they are often very legitimate claims. They're often rooted in poverty, state neglect, many types of abuses by the state. Um, but I am trying to separate them from criticisms of the project itself. So communities, in many cases, um, you know, would be upset if the project were totally canceled. But I will try and think of how I can get more evidence for that. So I do think, like, dams are quite different than something like a highway or a subway would be. And I would say that I'm not trying to treat this purely as, oh, this is a problem. It's a tension. It's a tension in how states build infrastructure. If they are going to build, and especially if they are going to bring infrastructure to places that have more limited state presence or to really expand infrastructure in places that had, you know, perhaps only a provincial road, they're going to have to confront a history of state neglect. And whether they're willing to pay the costs of making those investments is not always clear. One of the reasons, actually, the budgets for these community investments don't get included is that countries like Colombia often have, um, you know, cost-benefit calculators. So the National Planning Department, when it's deciding, should we do a PPP, should we invest in a major road, has to so say that this is socially beneficial when we think of the cost of the project. By the time you include all of the social investments, many public officials will say, the project isn't viable. We can't get the investors to do the project. And that's why you get a little bit of what Albert Hirschman would have called the hiding hand. So the project budget gets way underestimated, especially on these kind of community and land estimates. And therefore, once you get you, once you have the sunk cost of starting the investments, surprise, surprise, yes, the government has to pay a much higher cost. And part of that, I think, does come from the fact that the state is simultaneously addressing many different demands in communities where infrastructure is coming. So I think that's the tension. And I, you know, I'm not a policymaker at heart, so I don't know how governments resolve that tension. But I do think that to do infrastructure, in the words of the national um, infrastructure agency official who I quoted, you know, to do infrastructure that people want, 
the state has to be prepared to do these other types of public goods that people also often prioritize even more highly. Condolario. Yeah, kind of answers uh, part of the question Thanks. that I had. Just I have a couple of questions, but one of them, which is about state penetration. I mean, you're looking at countries that which would be classified as countries in which state reach is not very relevant, and mm -hmm. Colombia is probably the main example in South America. So I was wondering if you could say something about the scope conditions of the project, because I can see in other places, like building highways is like in areas where there are already roads, and mm -hmm. so I would think maybe it's a different story. Mm -hmm. And I think it would be great if maybe at the beginning of the project you said it was highways and yeah, subways, sorry. because <laughs> I, mean, I was thinking about school infrastructure. I mean, 25 minutes, it was no, hard, no, guys. No. <laughs> I mean, I mean, just to clarify. Yeah. And, or maybe also, aside from the overall sort of low spending in infrastructure, also provide some country statistics so as to sort of figure out what your countries are pieces of, yeah. so that we can get that more clearly. And then the other question I have is, so how do these uh, policy regimes or property regimes connect with your outcomes yeah. in mm -hmm. terms of, you know, the extent of infrastructure success or completion? And finally, what does the literature say? I mean, is there a case study literature? Is there any literature that has addressed this? What is your sort of reference in terms mm -hmm. of even the empirical cases? Uh, mm -hmm. Thanks. Okay. Um, so I do think land issues are a bigger problem in cases with uneven state penetration. Although I am thinking that probably my shadow cases will involve some of the smaller Central American cases that are just denser. Um, so like Panama and Costa Rica, I think raise similar issues. But I do think that, you know, greenfield projects where you need land and you're bringing the state to places that have pretty limited presence otherwise do generate even more of this dynamic. Um, I'm still working on the property rights connecting to outcomes, and part of that is just trying to get much better data on spending by particular project, by year, um, and trying to map that out. So this is very much half done, so half of a white elephant. <laughs> um, but thank you for, I am going to push to do that. I'm sort of really linking to the underspending outcomes. In terms of the case study literature, um, actually because we have Professor Gomez Ibanez here, um, he's one of the people who does a great job of pointing out that one of the reasons that states um, do play such a role in infrastructure provision is the difficulty solving these land issues, that you need to use coercion to essentially overcome take um, eminent domain issues. Um, and then there are more certainly more specific cases of difficulties that arise in acquiring land. I find most, I mean, a lot of the literature on mega projects, for example, is focused on the U.S. and developed countries, um, where some of these issues certainly do come up, um, but I don't think that it's necessarily comparative in terms of trying to understand how the different property regimes connect to the type of societal opposition that you get, but I certainly can bring much more of that out. Fran. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, go, yeah, go ahead, Fran. No, nope, uh, there is, but uh, go ahead. Okay, thanks. Um, Alicia, this is, this is great. Um, so the story that you told, I'm sorry it's a few minutes late, but the story that you told um, was sort of an unmediated story. There was a state and then there were communities. And other than the figure of Rosita, 
There was no organization. Um, and I'm thinking, if I'm a politician, this is my opportunity to jump in. Um, either to sort of try to move this process along because I'm representing some construction company that wants to get this built, or because I see an opportunity to become the advocate for the community and to try to get a, solve this, get a good price, um, are especially politicians that harvest their votes from those regions. Mm -hmm. Are politicians getting involved in this at all? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, so national politicians, these are national projects that I'm talking about, certainly are pushing these projects along, but the tension comes with local governments and what mayors are doing around these projects. Now, mayors usually don't think they're getting much credit for these projects. It's someone else's investment. So in that sense, they somewhat are on the side of communities in the sense like, let's get the schools and the health clinics and everything else that the community is asking for out of the project. <coughs> but there are definite tensions in these towns around the role of ethnic mobilization. So the pre-existing social structure was most towns had a Junta de Acción Comunal, which was like a social organization that had close relationships with the mayor. You then usually get the formation of a parallel organization along ethnic lines. So individuals who are left out of that organization are often very upset. And in most of the communities that I interviewed, the mayor aligned with those individuals, saying we can't just have negotiations with Rosita and sort of black organizations. We want the whole district to be consulted about the project. So I find mayors in a very awkward position in this because they're not necessarily supporting the ethnic community's demands. Um, but on the other hand, they are also not supporting the infrastructure project getting done. Federal deputies are pretty absent from these things. I mean, some of these projects that get stopped, you can see governors will fly in and sort of, you know, make a speech, like let's all reach an agreement. So I do think they play some brokering role, but I, I guess I'd put them more on the side of the national government, sort of at the state level, this is probably generating development. It's more the mayors who I think would be on the side of communities, but often end up divided between these two groups. Uh, I wanted to know like uh, how the other uh, institutional settings had an effect on the, if you could talk on the, but uh, you already answered that you haven't gone there, but I wanted to then go a little bit deeper and, and ask, um, so in the case of, of there, are, there are countries who, in, in Latin America, which uh, they, on paper, they have the same institutional setting. They have to ask communities, right, before building. But many times they just choose not to. And at the same time, these are countries in which you hear year after year that the budget was not fully invested. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering if you could think of any other reason. And mm -hmm. I know maybe you didn't go to other countries to do this, mm -hmm. but uh, in Colombia, if you saw any other uh, sources of not investing budget yeah. other than, oh, I don't want to do that because the community is so annoying, so I don't want to be a bad part of yeah. it. Okay. Yeah, so just on paper, um, so one of the big differences in Colombia is that every policy has to be consulted 
including the policy on prior consultation. So what many other countries have done is that they've said, okay, there's a right to prior consultation, but they've limited that right in all sorts of ways. Hmm. So, for example, Peru says prior consultation doesn't apply to projects in the public interest. So pretty much any state project is exempt from prior consultation, and that's why it's associated with extractives and private companies trying to build. Um, another really common thing that you'll see is something like Ecuador, which says, oh, well, prior consultation just means that Basically, we go talk to the community. It's not binding. It doesn't stop a project. It's not linked to an environmental license. The reason that Colombia can't do that is because if it wants to change the rules on prior consultation, it needs the communities to consent to the change in the rules. So that's where the stopgap comes. And it's pretty amazing given that if we think just in terms of demographics, like Colombia has much weaker indigenous movements and even kind of at the beginning of the period of black or Afro-descendant movements. So that's why there are these differences. On paper, the regulations actually aren't quite the same, given how they've been um, reglamented. Sorry, that's a Spanish word. <laughs> um, regulated. Um, there are many reasons why budgets don't get fully spent, and I agree with the comments. I need to link more clearly kind of what fraction of underspending might be attributed to these dynamics. Um, so some of the other big ones, which are part of the project, have to do with the way that accountability institutions have developed, and particularly kind of public investment authorities that have the ability to require more paperwork or stop a project or essentially um, oversee projects in such a way that politicians don't think it's worth their while. So that's one set of sort of bureaucratic reasons where I think many times you have the national government um, exerting checks over what otherwise could be spent, but in a much less um, regulated way. Another thing that I think is common in cases that have stronger party systems than I'm seeing here is also a mismatch in sort of national allocations and then desires to actually let your opponent spend the money. So in some cases, and even Colombia has a little bit of this, like the subway in Bogota, the National Planning Authority kind of approved the project but then kept asking for paperwork and paperwork and paperwork because if you talk to authorities, they'll say, we didn't want Gustavo Petro from the left to build the project. We wanted to wait for the election so Enrique Peñalosa would win, who we see as a technocrat who's going to manage the project, and one of our guys is essentially going to get the credit. So there could be some of that. I'm not sure how prevalent that sort of partisan, um, partisan rigging is, but it's oftentimes playing with the time and who's going to get credit for a project that's planned. Tony. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to ask this question properly because I'm not a lawyer. You talk about um, property protection, and it, you know, it seems like you've got two different kinds of, of property protections. You've got the conventional investors' protections, and then you've got this what you call property, this the prior consent or the, or the consultation. Um, I'm just wondering whether those two things aren't very different. Mm -hmm. And if you think that way, um, that a lot of the American um, undeveloped countries' problems with infrastructure delivery have the same kind of source. Right? We call it the environmental impact statement or something like that mm -hmm. that essentially slows, uh, slows things down. Mm -hmm. I think what's, what was puzzling to me and is different uh, about this uh, Latin American case and, and, say, the mega projects in the United States and so on, 
So we never have money left over. I, mean, I, I don't understand <laughs> how you yeah. don't spend the money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've definitely been struggling with this question of whether the sort of prior consultation and community rights fit in the same scheme. The reason that I put them there is that they are territorially defined. They're meant to be that if a community has a collective property title, then they can be consulted. The Colombian case complicates all of this because then consultation isn't based on where you're living and the ownership that you have over it, but instead your actual identity. So in that sense, it does get tricky, and certainly most property lawyers would not put communal rights in the same category, or at least they would think of it as a slightly different category of inalienable kind of communal rights. So I need to think a little bit more about how to fit them. But it is based on the notion that if you have a territorial claim over property that limits what the state can do, it does exercise um, or hold a similar role in constraining the state. But I'll think about that more. Um, I should say in terms of like having money left over, so in many of these cases, the projects end up being very over cost and with long delays. And it's precisely these long delays that also contribute to the fact that when they're finally done, they can be over cost. So what usually happens is that the government can't spend the money for a long period of time, and then maybe it resolves the community problem, or maybe it cancels the project. But when that final project gets done, after you've delayed it for five, ten years, it easily can end up costing much more than had it been built when it started. So there is this kind of tension that underspending in the short term can result in massive overspending in the long term. I'm probably um, outside of the scope of your research and all of that. Uh, but, you know, when you look at uh, this country, for that matter, uh, you're talking about Donald Trump trying to open up, uh, you know, the uh, public lands for uh, private extraction and all of that stuff. Is your research covering private institutions, corporations coming into these countries and dealing with the same type of obstacles, uh, or do they have different rules? You know what I'm asking? Yeah. Um. on the record on this, I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> so I was really worried when Trump started talking about doing PPPs in the U.S. because I do think that the risks of corporate, strong corporate influence are very strong in PPPs. And if we've learned anything from Latin America, it's that those ties between construction companies and politicians are, are enormously influential. And so in that sense, I thought, you know, the U.S. doesn't have a lot of experience at PPPs, and so that would be very risky, I'd say. Um, you see a lot of the same tactics that you see in Latin America, though. So, for example, the first thing that Trump did on infrastructure, I don't know if you saw this big press conference where he rolled out, you know, everything, all the bureaucratic steps that were required to get to, you know, an environmental impact study and all of the regulations around infrastructure, and that's a common move for Latin American presidents, too. So one of the things that I look at um, in this project more broadly is that, you know, many Latin American presidents build infrastructure through emergency decrees. 
So pretty much all of the projects in Ecuador are emergency decrees, hmm. Peru emergency decrees, and one of the other things that's really distinctive about Colombia is that it hasn't been able to use these emergency decrees. And that sort of state of emergency basically allows presidents to do what Trump would love to do, which is suspend all of the accountability, expedite the environmental license, not have to consult communities, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So in that sense, there is a tension between hyper-presidentialist systems where presidents really can say, well, if I want to do something, I want to do it fast. Let me just change the institutional environment completely. Um, of course, I, I hope that U.S. system, the, the American government is closer to the Colombian sort of saying, like, no, you just can't suspend all of the accountability apparatus around infrastructure. Quentin. Great. Thanks so much for the talk. Um, the first question I had was the extent to which the property regime type is truly exogenous and whether it, uh, there's property regime shifting or lane shifting over mm -hmm. time and whether that's something that is actually really important and whether you would want to select cases that shift lanes mm -hmm. uh, as a way to try to get at how the property regime might affect the outcomes and the kind mm -hmm. of the choreography over time. <laughs> And then the second was um, kind of the setup of the project and the shift between the framing of the research questions and then the content of the talk. And then how you described uh, in using a phrase like unrelated outcomes. Mm -hmm. So, and, but it, in what you're talking about sometimes is the ways in which infrastructure generates public value mm -hmm. uh, or is... Uh, um, there's some sort of public value capture occurring through infrastructure. So what would happen if you changed um, from, I think the initial frame was about underspending mm -hmm. or something about um, a spent through a spending lens to uh, infrastructure as an engine of public value creation mm -hmm. or um, versus not. And that mm -hmm. kind of fits with how you ended the talk with uh, the discussion of how infrastructure relates to debates in advanced industrial democracies about infrastructure and nimbyism or infrastructure and social goods production. And that seems to be an awful lot of the uh, debate in advanced industrial world is the ways in which infrastructure actually intentionally is used as an engine for generating investments in uh, policy areas related to health and education and social services. It's not an unintended or unrelated consequence, but it's mm -hmm. actually part um, of the process, even though it's a different line item. Mm -hmm. So if you shifted the research question to under what conditions infrastructure uh, directly or indirectly generates uh, other public goods versus the conditions under which it's, it's not generating those kinds of goods, but other kinds of goods. you. Um, so I agree that I just need to do more work on the sort of exogeneity of these property rights. And um, I think that I also probably will end up periodizing the project a little bit because what I see happening is basically like most of these property rules are set in kind of big important moments for the country. And then you have the commodities boom in Latin America, and sort of resources become much more available. There's more business pressure to build infrastructure with trade opening. 
And you see this conflict between institutions that were set up for something very different than what governments were trying to do. Now, of course, you're seeing pushback. So like Colombia, their big business really wants to change these rules. Whether they do so in the short run is a little bit less clear. There are some countries that I think have a little bit more lane shifting happening. Um, Peru, I think, is more, it's going to be more possible to change these rules, although it's been interesting to follow the debates because even sort of Fujimoristas, like Fujimori's old party, um, which is not known to exactly protect indigenous communities, ended up vetoing a bill that would basically make it easier to acquire property, um, to acquire land for infrastructure mm. on the basis that, you know, it really cares about indigenous communities and therefore couldn't sign the bill. So there's also a sort of strategic debate going on of, you know, it's very easy for parties to position themselves on the side of, you know, uh, minority communities in these debates, but it's something I need to think a little bit more about. Um, I need to think a little bit about infrastructure as public value creation or not. I mean, I do think, uh, sort of going back to kind of Kathy's question, Catherine's question, I even think it was like Catherine or not. Um, there is this question of, you know, when does infrastructure actually, when is it socially desirable? Does it create growth? Does it create other types of social investments that, you know, people want? Um, I'm trying to distinguish that from purely the kind of white elephant projects that do nothing, and then also a complicated class in the middle that might create value for the nation, but harms for local communities. Um, I mean, maybe there's some way to try to code projects to think a little bit more about differences in composition and make that part of the puzzle as well. Why are some countries better at doing projects that actually have these kind of socially desirable features or or build infrastructure in ways that unleash those socially desirable features? But I need to think a little bit more about we usually close at 5.30, um, and it is a few minutes after that, or it's, I guess, 5.31 or 5.32. So I think we will close now, um, but join me in giving Alicia a hand for a wonderful talk. You've been listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. If you'd like to learn more, please visit ash.harvard.edu or follow the Ash Center on social media at Harvard Ash.